Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core. I'm also the host of the popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. His new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published in 2021. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you have more information on the book and a broad range of other healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertperlmd.com. Together, we also host the bi-weekly podcast, Coronavirus the Truth, and next week, we'll be adding a fourth show to our podcast series titled Breaking Healthcare's Rules. Our first guest will be Malcolm Gladwell. Our guest today is Dr. Karen DeSalvo. She has served as Google's Chief Health Officer since 2019. Before that, she was Acting Assistant Secretary for Health, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, and the Director of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Hello, Karen, and welcome to the Fixing Healthcare podcast. Well, hello, Robbie. It's great to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Karen, you've had at least five careers. You're a physician, you've worked for the federal government, you've been a health commissioner, you've been a professor, and you've worked in private business where you are now. Which of these have you enjoyed the most and which has been most frustrating? Oh, well, that's a great question. And it is true that I have had a really interesting professional journey. I think all of it, as I reflect, is about trying to understand how to bring health to people and recognizing, especially as I grew in my career, that health is more than healthcare and that it takes other sectors to make a difference. And I would tell you that what I carry in my heart and my mind every day is the clinical work that I did. I loved being a doctor. I loved the trust and the relationship I have with my patients. So of all of them, that's my favorite. I, I think I haven't hit a least favorite yet in the healthcare in the healthcare world. So um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to call out any of the opportunities because they've all been interesting and important in their own ways. Let me ask you about your time in the government uh, when you were the Assistant Secretary for Health, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, and the Director of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Uh, What were these roles like? What were you able to accomplish? What are your perspectives on how the federal government can help address the healthcare crisis in America? You know, I came to public service um, as a very direct result of my experiences after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans where I began to understand that caring for my patients didn't only happen in a healthcare system, Robbie, but there were all these contextual and policy issues that, that needed to be addressed as well. And so before I went to, to, into federal service, I was health commissioner in New Orleans, as you mentioned, which was a good training ground for me to understand the ways that government can partner with the private sector and with healthcare. So I was able to carry some of that thinking with me into my federal into my federal service and, and try to apply, certainly at a national level and sometimes globally, this kind of partnership uh, idea between, between government and the private sector. I never thought that government was going to have all the tools in the toolbox. I, sh- I should probably uh, tell this part of the story too, Robbie, which is that I very reluctantly went into, into federal service. I loved being health commissioner. It's a really um, granular job. 
where you see the impact of your work um, literally from in your neighbors then you and you talk to them in the in the grocery store federally it's you're more distant from the people that you're that you're impacting and I think also for me uh, I had I had really thought of myself at the time as being public health and community health oriented and not a tech person so when they asked me to serve as the national coordinator for health IT I, I declined because it, I just didn't think I had the kind of background and it wasn't really how I wanted to go deep in the next part of my journey. Um, but but Kathleen Sebelius convinced me and uh, helped me see that technology is not the end game, but a tool to health and also um, gave me the opportunity to go there and at HHS and co-lead the delivery system reform strategy, which was really important to me to sort of help, move, help the country move to value because it was one of those contextual issues, those policy issues that I not only saw affecting my care delivery before Katrina, but very acutely after, because people don't have insurance. And if that insurance is focused on doing more and not doing better, it's really hard to build um, a strong system that's outcomes oriented and, and could get us in the New Orleans context, for example, out of generations of bad health um, and um, think about how we could do that um, at scale for the country. So. I loved my government service. I carried there the stories of my patients, my experiences at local in local public service, but also I saw it as a an opportunity to apply the tools of technology in other ways, like to, to value-based care and then eventually to public health. For the past couple of years, you've been Google's chief health officer. What does mm -hmm. that job entail? Mm. We are defining it as we go. <laughs> it's a new job. Um, I was recruited here principally to stand up a, a clinical team that could work across the Google enterprise to build out, you know, authoritative health information on our, 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 our ecosystems that are things like search and maps and YouTube, um, where we're literally billions of people are looking for health information and we needed to have a, a way that we could, we could create a framework that would provide clinically great information where we could and then address misinformation. So that was always part of the, the remit of, of the, the role, but COVID really accelerated and also expanded the role. Um, for example, um, it expanded the responsibilities of the chief health officer to be employee health and safety and, and medical support for things like benefits. So we've been um, addressing COVID around the world for our employees, but also for communities. Uh, the, the, the other big area that's evolved in the last um, couple of years is, is that now the, the chief health officer has responsibilities not only for clinical, uh, but also for regulatory and health compliance. And, and I've built out a team that is addressing health equity as well. So it's for me, it's a chance for us to provide company-wide support um, and, and be the backbone of the strategic and operational thinking around the, the highest rigor, the most equitable, um, the most accessible kinds of clinical and, and health information for people, no matter where they are, and, and make sure that uh, when, they're, when they're coming to us or when we want to reach out to them um, on various platforms that we're doing that in a way that, that certainly as a doc, I'd be proud um, for the kind of information I'd, I'd share with my patients. But, but I think certainly as a company, we want to make sure we're being trusted partners for people and companies all over the world. It's a wonderful job, can I tell you? I really have a great team and I'm, I'm really grateful for the work we get to do for people. As you know, in season one of Fixing Healthcare, we had a variety of experts on the show offering a broad set of solutions for all that ails our country. In the current season, 
we're asking individuals from each of the vertical slices to come here and explain how their piece is going to be a major contributor to solving the total, I'll say, uh, portfolio of problems that our nation has. How will Google be that problem solver for the American healthcare system? Well, let me start by saying um, that Google sees our, um, our opportunity in solving the challenges as, as doing that by partnering and by augmenting. And you know, listening to your various podcasts, I would say that's been thematic through the way people have been thinking about the, the challenges that we face in health in America and really around the world. I mean, it's that, it's that way we describe public health, Robbie, which is Health is what we do together as a society to create the conditions in which everyone can be healthy. So first and foremost for us at Google, we want to think about how we can be good partners to consumers, to their caregivers, and then to the communities in which they live. We want to make sure that we're providing information and insights, whether that's on their wrist, you know, in a, in a, in a hardware device like a Fitbit or more broadly through YouTube. We want to make sure that that for caregivers, that they have the opportunity to take advantage of tools like health AI to get to the diagnosis of cancer faster or to the treatment of it better, or even the diagnosis of tuberculosis in Sub-Saharan Africa. And we, we can't do any of this work because health is more than healthcare without addressing community context. And so we also believe here that we have a partnering responsibility with public health, with social care, with other organizations that are thinking about how people understand the resources within their community for healthy food or for green space, how we can be partnered to help understand the impacts of climate on health and, and disasters on health, but also how do we provide tools to the public health enterprise to see the next pandemic coming and, and use novel signals for forecasting. So our expectation is that we will be addressing health broadly in a, with healthcare, but also thinking about all the other inputs that affect uh, people's lives. Because at the end of the day, we're principally a consumer facing company and it's the, it's the, the, the average person uh, and in their, in their community that is coming to us uh, for help and that we also want to reach out to, to be helpful. So for us, um, I'll just say it again. It's, it's not that we think we have all the solutions or tools, but we have some really good things that we can offer. And we, we definitely want to do that in partnership with others because it's going to take really all those sectors to make it work. Can you tell listeners about a couple of the, I'll say more details about the, a couple of the projects that you're working on today? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, uh, I, I will start just by, by um, um, giving you an example from COVID because it's been so dominant in the work that we've leaned in to do in the past couple of years, Robbie. I mean, everybody's been COVID focused, we're no exception. And one of those things, uh, for example, has been to help people get information, not only blue link, as we say, you know, website information, but help them navigate when they wanna say get tested. And we have been able to um, partner, for example, with the, with the US government to make sure that free testing sites that they have available show up on maps when people are looking for testing near them. This is um, a way also that we can help with equity, Robbie, because it's not just going to be the paid retail or healthcare sites that we want to show up. We need to make sure that people know there's tests available in like libraries or federally qualified health centers. 
So it's an example there of how we would think about helping people navigate in other ways using those kinds of surfaces uh, like search and, and maps. And one of the things that we've done recently that's non-COVID but, but related to helping people navigate is they're going to search for care near them. And we've done things like um, show them telehealth options and put up the price points for the telehealth options as a move towards transparency. We now can show people how, what kind of insurance different uh, doctors and providers take in the community, Medicaid, Medicare. And we're also um, starting a, an effort to help people just click on a link to get an appointment near them when, they, when they're searching for things on those surfaces. It, 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 it's not a tool that we have to push out to people. I wanna be really clear about this because these are billion user surfaces. These are billions of people are using these on a regular basis. And what we wanna do is when they come, not only give them information, but give them, give them some tools that help them navigate more seamlessly and see that those tools are driving things like equity and transparency in the healthcare system. Because when they that way, when they not only arrive in the healthcare system, but as they're getting there, we want them to be um, as eyes wide open and have as, as good of information as possible. Because it's really empowering to people when they they show up in the system. So I think those are some of my current favorite examples of thinking about how you know when when seventy percent of people are, are are searching for health information before they go to healthcare, how can we make sure that we're also helping them to navigate that journey in a way that that makes it easier and faster and more transparent for them. So I'm going to be a little bit of devil's advocate on this one. Experts don't always have the same thoughts and opinions on things. And sometimes when more information about a topic comes out, a consensus might change. You know, what are your thoughts on the possibility of Google or YouTube mislabeling something as misinformation or censoring it or pulling on a YouTube video when, you know, later it's determined that it might have been correct all along, but there wasn't enough information at the time? Uh, isn't one of the great things about science and about the internet, uh, the ability to draw together a diverse group of thoughts and opinions and strategies about a wide range of topics. And at the same time, there are still the healthcare equivalent of, you know, a flat earther. Um, how will it be determined what isn't, isn't worthy of being labeled misinformation or who is a credible source? And don't you run the risk of, you know, the, the healthcare equivalent of, down the road, you know, someone that was convicted for murder and 20 years later, they found out they were wrongly convicted. Kind of what are your, what are your thoughts on how that? Oh, I love that question because we're wrangling with it. And the pandemic has been a, a such a real time experience of the scientific enterprise at work. You know, everybody has seen it on public display on YouTube and in other places where we're learning and iterating um, about the right therapies, about vaccines, about masking, about social distance, all of this has been under constant debate in the scientific and public health community and the public at large. So we have um, leaned on consensus bodies wherever we can. So for example, the FDA or the World Health Organization, depending on the geography. And we, we often start with the global consensus, if it's a new issue, and then localize as much as possible, yeah, in the in the various countries, or, the, or even all the way down to the county level for recommendations on things like, like masking, because we think that that our role is amplification of information, not creation of the content, is especially um, on surfaces like search. Now, there are some things though that that are clearly harmful and it is not the kind of information that you would wanna 
put out in the pub in the public domain. And for the most part, those things have been somewhat clear um, to, to be able to define in COVID. Uh, they're certainly more clear in other sectors. Uh, and so outside of health, you know, some of the, the work that we do in things like identifying videos that are pedophilia, even there, AI can't do it alone. And even humans, um, when they watch the videos, have to sometimes make some determination. So there's this, as I mentioned earlier, this space in between that's sometimes difficult. And you're touching on this really important component, which is there should be discourse and public debate about scientific issues. Um, there's some some of the treatments, for example, for COVID are in the midst of clinical trials. So we'd want to make sure people can get information on that and learn that these drugs are under study. On the other hand, we, we wouldn't want people to think that they're available uh, for treatment right now if they're not recommended by the current regulatory body um, in, in, the, in those government areas. It's the reason that we have partnered with organizations like professional societies in the U.S. and abroad, and I mentioned the National Academy of Medicine, to help think about this framework, because we definitely want to support scientific discourse and the notion that people should have access to information. On the other hand, we also um, know that we have some responsibilities about um, egregious or harmful misinformation that we wouldn't want to get perpetuated out into the ecosystem. It's an important issue. We work on it and try to get better every day. We're working with partners to do better. I think you're right on that there's um, some important considerations that all of us have to, to think about in medicine and scientific enterprise in, in general as the public is let in to what typically was something we did in Grand Rounds and making sure that they understand how the scientific process works. You know, Google on a couple of occasions has stepped forward to try to take the lead in, I'll say, healthcare transformation, including creating a uh, early electronic health record. And each time it seems to me at least that it's had to back off. Uh, what do you see about the past and what's gonna be different in the future? Well, I think at the end of the day, uh, the, the thing that I think about is trust. And at the end of the day for us, we as a company need to move to a place where people trust us in health in the way that people trust us in other sectors. So we know that um, that trust is gonna be built not only with directly with consumers, but in partnership with um, healthcare and doctors, for example. So, so we're, we're thinking a lot about how we take steps that allow us to build that trust. You know, you know this from, from medicine that that's job one with any of our patients, right? For me, especially as a, a, an internist, primary care doc, if my patients don't trust me, then we're not going to be on a journey together that's going to allow me to help steer and guide them where it matters and to, and to hear them and their priorities and their needs and wants. And so I, I certainly learned that very early in the exam room and at the bedside. And it's, it's that kind of thing that I carry with me into this work here at Google. So Robbie, I, I don't take it for granted is what I'm trying to say. And I think what, we're, what we want to do is show that tools like Health AI, tools that we can do for analytics through cloud, messages that we help lift up on YouTube, all of the ways that we're partnering and working with consumers and, and with caregivers. We want to uh, make sure that we're showing that trustworthy with it and that then we'll take the next step in that journey. You know, Karen, both you and I have spent our entire professional careers trying to move American healthcare forward, not by a little bit, by, by a lot. And I'm becoming increasingly frustrated 
that the largest companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, they have the best engineers in the entire world. And yet they seem to keep taking small, I'll call them incremental steps, rather than leaping forward and really transforming and disrupting American medicine, given it's their size and their technical excellence that they, that at least I think they could do. What are your thoughts? Thank you very much. Robbie, try, try being a person like me who also wants to see transformation of the public health sector in addition to the healthcare sector. I have um, a lot of worries that the, the underlying infrastructure that's there to support people's health is really struggling in a lot of ways. So I, I some mornings don't feel very enthusiastic that we're gonna get to this nirvana of a, of a really um, person-centered healthcare system and, and health ecosystem, but doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. Your question about big tech and other big companies, I'll, I'll just take the big tech piece and say, uh, I didn't come to, to Google to disrupt the healthcare system or to show the healthcare system how it should be done. I came here because I believe that uh, there's a couple of key things that are missing in the, in the work we've been doing. One is, uh, to say it for the 50th time, consumers are not empowered. They don't have a seat at the table in the way that they need to. Two, uh, we're not taking advantage of tools that can reduce cognitive load and improve the efficiency of care to pull cost out of the system. We've instead only largely in tech been trying to find ways to add new things to the system. And so, yes, it's true that um, uh, sometimes tech can be incremental, but sometimes that's okay because if you want to really do things like um, make sure you build a health AI, AI tool that um, serves as the second read for mammograms for the National Health Service and allows them to um, be more uh, judicious in the use of the, the limited capacity of radiologists that they have to read mammograms and shorten the time to when women can get the results of their mammogram. Those are good things. They're, on, they're at scale, they're for a whole nation's you know, screening program, but it also has to fit in the workflow and the model has to be fair. And oh, you're dealing with life and death, Robbie, and a regulated environment. So it's not like, it's not exactly um, that you can just press through with the technology. And I know you know that. We, we have to be respectful of, of the, the current ecosystem because there's some very good things in it, the humanity, for example. We also have to be respectful that this is life and death and that for those reasons, there's a lot of, of oversight and regulation. So the steps need to, to be, I think, respectful to something that touches everybody's lives and um, that people care very deeply about, uh, which is health. So look, we haven't uh, transformed many things overnight we being the U.S. healthcare system, but we have made progress. And I do think people need to keep trying because we shouldn't settle um, for the fact that we have the richest, most amazing country in the world. And um, there's a lot, by the way, we can learn from other countries. And, and we have to just keep every day getting up and pressing harder. So you've worked on interoperability for much of your career, especially when you were at the federal level. And yet as a country was still pretty far, I think, from getting there, What's it going to take? When will it happen? And what about forcing? I know it's, it's being discussed, but it still hasn't happened. Uh, all of the electronic health companies to open their APIs so that companies like Google or third-party developers could create apps that we as clinicians could use, that patients would find user-friendly rather than serving only as a billing focus. 
Well, this is a, an hour-long podcast in and of itself, but to be crisp, there is a policy expectation in America that companies open their APIs, and there's now some, um, not just expectation, but some sticks, the blocking rule, and some powers uh, given to the Office of Inspector General. That's uh, work was done largely in Cures 1.0, I'm already ahead of myself, uh, work that my team helped inform when I was national coordinator. So moving to an, uh, a non-proprietary API system so that apps could be built with the data for consumers and that consumers could have a more app-like experience to their health, not only for their record, but to potentially do things like download an app, an a health AI app that could um, read a pathology slide from some of their tissue or read their mammogram. There, there's a future in there that um, really does start to open up a more consumer-directed and oriented environment. So the policy has been laid Congress being in a very bipartisan way, supportive and pushing it, but you are correct. There's still a lot of pushback from industry, from the physician community, and from the business considerations of the healthcare system. I know it does sound cliche, but from a technology standpoint, fire-based APIs are a reasonable and good way to share information. There's a governance structure that's been, been stood up to protect people's information and their rights. Is all of this you know, uh, enacted? No, and a lot of that is because there's still a strong business driver to do more in the healthcare system, to hoard data in the healthcare system. And, and so until we can keep pushing that and, do, and not step back, I mean, this is what I was so excited to see after I left office, the Trump administration carried forward this policy and really doubled down on it. I was very um, excited to see ways that they were thinking about pushing healthcare towards this world. And this current administration is continuing to push that. And the current national coordinator has been clear that 2024, it's coming. So we need to be ready that we're going we're gonna to have to have the privacy and security and technology and business ways of, of seeing that consumers can have access to their health information, especially in a cohesive longitudinal form and have a more app-based experience to their health. You know, Karen, in an article I'll be publishing in Forbes before this podcast airs, I describe an operating room success that Google helped achieve. This was a patient who had a complex next procedure. The operation went flawlessly. However, before the patient was taken off the operating room table, the patient started having trouble breathing and was found to have the vocal cords almost closed off for reasons that seemed unclear since the surgery was not done in that area. The traditional approach would have been to intubate the patient, passing a breathing tube down through the mouth, between the vocal cords into the lungs, and then putting them in the ICU for observation overnight. But instead, the resident opened her iPhone, found an identical case in the literature, recognized that at least in this other case, the local anesthesia was the etiology, and said within 30 minutes, this patient should be better. So rather than having to intubate the individual, the patient was kept in the operating room for observation. Less than a half hour later was back to normal, breathing normally and able to go home without the hellish experience of having to have a tube pass through one's vocal cords and into one's lungs. I could imagine Google creating a variety of tools beyond the search ones that exist today for doctors. Anything like this on the horizon? Oh, most definitely. We've done some work in this space um, already with um, systems like the NHS and the VA, and we're doing some work like this with other systems like Mayo. What you're describing is 
insights from health information. And there's a number of ways that that can be useful for frontline providers. So some of it is, is kind of the dramatic improvement is the word I'll use of, of decision support. I mean, Robbie, you probably trained in a time like I did when you had a Washington manual in your pocket. Um, for those who don't know what that is, it was a little spiral bound book that we kept in our our lab coat pocket. And when we had questions, we, we flipped through the pages and looked things up. And it was often uh, out of date by the time it was printed and in your pocket. So you also kept another little notebook where you wrote things and, and you wrote things about patients you'd seen to help improve and iterate and learn so that you would go, oh yes, when I see this, I should think of taking these actions. Well, what you're describing for that, that woman in the, the, the doctor in the operating room is just like this digitized version of a Washington manual and a and your own experiential notebook, but done in a way that's so much more efficient and effective because it takes into account the learnings, not only of the literature, but of, of all the patients like that and, and all the, the care experiences like that. Not only is, is that work um, something that we're involved in and interested in, but it's also got implications for equity. So if you can think about how do you create seamless decision support that works in the, for the sort of next best action that is uh, seamless in the workflow also, but helps to um, not only think about what's the right drug or what's the right way to, to save the patient whose airway is closing, but also make sure that we're not um, introducing implicit bias into the healthcare system. So there are, uh, I think, a number of ways that, that we would think it would be interesting and helpful to the healthcare ecosystem, not only to save lives, but to, to reduce inequities. And yes, uh, it's an area of opportunity. As you say, the world is changing. The residents I teach no longer read textbooks in order to figure out the operations that need to get done. They open YouTube, a Google uh, subsidiary, and watch five of the world's experts doing the procedure in great detail, narrating it. It just seems to me the opportunities are so massive, but it will require, I believe, a level of search that goes beyond that which is available today, what will search look like in five years? Well, you know, I think search and YouTube uh, and, and the sister surface of, of geo maps are gonna be um, much more omni-channel. So you're already experiencing some of that when you seek and find information on any of those surfaces. And, and by the way, Robbie, we experimented with a lot of that during COVID. So what I mean is, if you search for something, um, you can also find videos. Um, you can also, if you search for things on YouTube, the video surface, you can also find flat links to take you to the World Health Organization. And we see that people are navigating those things. For example, in, on the YouTube surface, um, when you put a flat link to, uh, so not a video, but just a, a link people can click on for the World Health Organization about COVID, more than 600 billion impressions for, for that just in, in the first part of the pandemic alone. And we also see that people want to engage differently um, on search, which historically didn't have as much of that kind of live content. So you'll be, I think what you'll, you'll see is that people are able to experience information in the ways they feel accustomed to. We're also working on ways um, that, that people can access that information differently. So if you think about how you can use lens to take a picture of something, not only to learn what is that plant, but um, if you see something you want to purchase, we have that available for shopping. We announced last year that we're working on a way to help people get a, a differential of what a skin condition might be with a, with a dermatology assist tool that would be available directly to consumers. So thinking about how 
a search and our other our other information services become not only accessible for information in the ways people want to ingest it, but also how they want to seek it by voice, by picture, by typing, and then thinking of how to apply that not only to other sectors, but but to health sectors. So people can start to, to get more of that information for themselves, or as you described, clinicians can use it to gain their skills. Google has the engineers and technical expertise to address some of the biggest, I'll say, desires and pain points in medicine. I'm thinking about the difficulty physicians have charting and how AI could allow charts to be created by through voice recognition or using AI to be able to help patients to understand the problems they have, to figure out the diagnosis they may need to diagnose and uh, treat. Do you see this happening for Google in the near future? And if so, when can listeners expect to have these tools available for themselves? We are working on uh, many of those tools. I suspect they, <laughs> that you've done your homework. And um, so for example, we have a, a, a tool called Care Studio, which is not designed to replace the electronic health record, but to be that user interface that creates a more seamless and significantly better experience for the clinician, whether that's about searching for information or about over time recording that information in, in the chart. And just like I was describing that, that when we think about consumer search and how it's going to be a more omni-channel experience. It'll be like that increasingly for documentation and, and work in the electronic health record or other systems. So like most um, folks in the, in the tech ecosystem, we understand that there's going to be a mix of voice and, um, and using AI for next best option or for auto-populate. Those are all things that the Care Studio team is, is working on or, or has been asked to, to think about with, with their partners in the field. I would say also that as we're, as we're thinking about the opportunities going forward to use some of the techniques and tools that we have at Google, health AI, um, analytics, and some of the other, the other tech capabilities, it's not only for the healthcare provider, Robbie, but we're also thinking of ways that is useful for the health system in general, meaning the back office. Um, so we've, we've been doing uh, more work with health plans and healthcare systems to also improve some of those efficiencies and think about supply chain or physician payment. There's plenty of ways that people come to us and, and have problems to solve, and we believe we've got ways that we can we can help we can help solution those. And at the end of the day, a lot of it is taking the data and turning it into insights in a way that is leveraging health AI to create tools that are learning. And the learning piece, Robbie, is one of these missing holy grail things that people talk about in healthcare is creating this learning health system. Absent AI, it's really hard to do because otherwise you're trying to do it with humans and with quality improvement systems that can be a little slower. Health AI can, can significantly accelerate that and continue to improve current processes and refine better processes that, that we may not have thought about if we were only using some of the cognitive capabilities that we have as humans. As you look around the healthcare landscape in America, what are some of the ways technology should be used or used more to improve healthcare outcomes or even whole health for patients, but isn't? You know, what are the, some of the things that you're seeing that perhaps 
we haven't discussed on this show, but are so obvious to a tech expert like yourself that it should be being used? Like what makes you bang your head against the wall of frustration that it's not already happening? It's a good, it's a really good question because the obvious one is computer vision. I've talked, to, I've talked a bit on the podcast about work we're doing for mammography reading. So that there's, a, there's a suite of work in there for imaging and diagnostics that relate to reading pathology slides or mammograms or um, retinal images, uh, tuberculosis work we're doing. Th- these, are, these are, especially um, in areas like pathology slides, it's essentially a picture. Computers and AI are really good at reading pixels, better than humans, and they don't get fatigued. And yes, um, all of those images and the pathology slides have to be put into context. I do understand that. So it's, it's to me, again, not um, supplantation, but, but significant augmentation. So getting to a place where we expect that your prostate um, tissue slide is going to be read by AI and a human is so necessary. Getting there, though, is the barrier isn't only about the AI model. We've done a lot of good work in that space and have advanced imaging reads in that area. It's also the fact that it has to be in the workflow. So we're doing work with healthcare partners to understand when and how you know it makes sense to, for that AI to pop up. A lot of radiologists and, and ER docs already know that that their um, their radiology hardware is using health AI and popping up um, extra reads. So that's already that's starting in the real world, but we're still interested in understanding how from a human factor standpoint, it, it makes the most sense, like floating all the abnormal stuff to the top of the queue. So when you're fresher, that's what you read and maybe the person's still in the exam room. So that's the work we're doing with Northwestern around mammography and with NHS also. We're trying to understand not only how the pixels can be read better, but how it can be used in the workflow in a way that's meaningful for the, for the doc and also for the patient. I think the other part, just flipping back to pathology, is we haven't digitized pathology. We have digitized radiology. And um, in many ways, you know, retinopathy work, we don't have the, the way to actually implement a tool like that that would be, in many ways, um, incredible advancement to create access to the best quality pathology, no matter where you are. Right, um, or the you could you could say that same story for radiology or for ophthalmology or for dermatology. These are the these are the ways that I think about using pretty straightforward tools that um, we know are are quite good, but we don't have the enterprise itself across the world isn't set up to have that information digitized so that AI can be a help me to the system. Are there any technologies out there, you know, being in Google, you're probably exposed to a lot of things that the rest of the country isn't, um, that are either in the early stages of development or that haven't widely been adapted, maybe something that's being used in another country that hasn't been used here yet, that you're super excited about. Is there anything out there that you see that you look at that you're like, wow, this is really going to change healthcare in America in the next five years? It's not just a technology. It's a, it's a way that the digital health sector has built a sticky relationship with some consumers, and that's um, home-based diagnostic testing. I am fascinated by how hungry people are to have convenient in-home diagnostic tests for COVID and beyond. You know, it was a kind of a, I'd say a elite kind of subgroup of people who were using some of these companies. It's pretty wide, increasingly widespread. 
And the part that's interesting to me about it is laboratory is something that often does require a biologic specimen. So it, it's not something that can be done completely virtually. So there has to be some kind of an interface with the diagnostic tool. The diagnostics in the COVID time have gotten much more sophisticated and the work of the RADx team at the NIH, this billion dollars they received to advance technology for COVID testing, they're, they're seeing that it's applicable in other areas of diagnostic testing for convenient at-home tools that, you know, it's like having the, the Keurig in your kitchen for different kinds of coffee, the pathway to seeing that it's there for diagnostic testing. Now, I don't think we're, we're there yet, but we've seen really significant technological advances. And if people are interested, they should go to the RADx site at NIH and start to learn about some of these new, these new lighter, faster, probably less expensive technologies that are more stable and can be deployed in the home. The reason that's interesting to me is not just the diagnostic piece, but because so much of healthcare um, and tech companies want to be, you know, with people in their everyday lives, in their home, being helpful. Well, these, these, you know, testing tech companies are. And now they're building on top of their stack, um, not only uh, proctored tests for, you know, COVID, but they're adding telehealth and not just for COVID, but for other kinds of care. And they're beginning to think about uh, other ways to add to their stack to build upon that trusted relationship they have built with people during the pandemic. So it's a to watch for me um, because I think they're filling a need um, that goes beyond telehealth or the kind of digital first solutions that that the traditional healthcare system has been engaged in. And they have found a, uh, a sticky sweet spot for some, some segment of the population. Now, the goal there again is it shouldn't just be for people uh, with great insurance or money or whatever, it should be for everyone. But I think that's possible, especially um, if some of these newer, uh, really inexpensive technologies continue to, to advance in the way that they have. You and your colleagues in Google have a, a wonderful and very promising agenda. What are the company's biggest risks and challenges? Well, I think the reality is um, that we know that healthcare is complicated and that there is um, a need to make sure that, that we're, we're putting customers first and customer is, is also consumer. So that means uh, we have to be a good partner. It means we have to be trusted. And that's, that's sort of job one challenge. Um, and we've been able to grow that trust very significantly throughout the pandemic. Now we got to build on that and can't take it for granted. We got to keep, keep up those that, that good work of, of putting good information out there, being a good partner to healthcare and, and, and to public health and health plans um, and build upon those, those relationships and that general trust. The second big area that I think all of us face, not just Google, is that people's data is the underlying engine of, of the world today, right? It's the, the fuel and it's the thing everyone wants, which means that there are really important privacy and security expectations for anything that we would want to build. So we um, have privacy by design, we're cybersecurity by design. We know at the end of the day, things have to be accessible, but people have to know what their choices are about sharing and be able to consent to that and have some transparency if things change. And the third thing that I want to say, and because it's very top of mind for all of us is equity. 
building tools for some segments of the population isn't good enough. We cannot leave anyone behind anywhere. So our expectation is that we're going to build health for billions and it's going to, that billions is everyone everywhere on the planet. This is no small task, but it is our responsibility because we're a global company and because digital could exacerbate inequities in ways that none of us would want. And really the opportunity is to find a way for digital to drive equity. One last question. You're a visionary, you're a futurist. Can you see a time, a decade from now, when a product of Google's, an AI-driven solution will actually replace what a doctor does today rather than just augmenting it? Those are kind words coming from you because that's your whole that's your whole world. I'm just trying to, to do my thing every day. But here's what I would hope. I'll go back to a story, which is I'm an internist. I saw a lot of people with chronic disease like diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. And I uh, took care of low-income patients in New Orleans at the public hospital here. They had to take off work, take a couple of buses to get here to the clinic, and it was inconvenient for them. And so, so much of what I was doing for them for their chronic disease management was somewhat routine and could have been done either virtually or asynchronously, but none of the tools existed then. So I pulled their paper chart off the wall and scan their labs and their current blood pressure and make a care plan and then go in the room and talk to them and figure out what else was going on that I needed to know with respect to things like, had they lost their job or was there a reason that they hadn't been able to take their meds or something, something new that was going on I needed to know about. But often, Robbie, it was a ballet <laughs> that we had created in medicine where people had to come physically in and, and I had to do some part of the, the dance and, and then they had to take their two buses to go back home. And it was a world that I, even then in the nineties thought, God, we could do better for these folks. And there's so much of what I'm doing that's kind of routine. And I'll give you the specifics of some of those things. So yes, you could do that through telehealth. We can, we can communicate through chatbots. We have so many of those tools available now that make care more convenient. And yes, people really want that. But also there's some of the some of the decisions that I was trying to remember to make about a flu shot or scheduling a mammogram that we can automate. Those are the really important um, cognitive loads that I hope we can begin to continue to pull out of the work of the docs and the nurses and others in the care system so that they can focus on how's your kid, how's your heart, uh, the, the things of humanity that aren't just soft and fluffy, but actually really do affect allostatic load and people's overall health and, and allows, allowed me as a doc to begin to see ahead in their health and in, in the, the future of their, of their health needs. But those kind of routinized, very routinized things take up a fair amount of time in practice. And, and that, that's where I, I hope that we'll do a replacement. The rest of it is very much about augmentation because I, I do firmly believe that, that health is human and that we have to keep that part of the, we have to keep relationships, we have to keep trust, and we have to be thinking more broadly than just the healthcare tools, but all the inputs to people's health. Robbie, what do you think about what Karen said? Jeremy, Karen has done remarkable work, both during her time in government and over the past three years as Google's chief medical officer. She understands the incredible role 
that information technology can play in helping to transform the American healthcare system. She and I are fully aligned when it comes to the potential technology has to advance medical practice for the benefit of both patients and physicians. If there's one place of disagreement, it's that I don't believe that we will make the sufficient progress needed if our steps are incremental rather than disruptive. If the problems in American healthcare would stay static, small steps could work. But as the current coronavirus pandemic has proven, the problems are growing too fast for that strategy to be successful. I have massive respect for Google and the incredible advances the company has made in revolutionizing how billions of people around the globe search for content and solve problems. I look forward to seeing the next suite of tools the company will be making available to doctors and patients to prevent chronic disease, avoid their complications, and help people to live a longer and more healthy life. And I'm hoping that Google, with Karen's leadership, will begin to break healthcare's unwritten rules. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on both the system and culture of medicine, you can find it at robertpearlmd.com. And be sure to download next Sunday's first Breaking Healthcare's Rules program with Malcolm Gladwell as our inaugural guest. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare and have a great day.